Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Sharon, and Sharon was in multiple abusive relationships. It's a story of trauma, sexual abuse, cognitive dissonance, lies, and infidelity. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Sharon. How are you? Good, Brandon. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Sharon is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions, and please do read all of the instructions. And then send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And again, please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today you are going to hear Sharon's story, and Sharon's story is one that spans her whole entire life. You're going to hear about the sexual abuse that she endured when she was a child and how that affected the rest of her life. And you'll hear two stories of abusive relationships. The first person Sharon married, and the second one was a long-term boyfriend. And when you are knee-deep, in a toxic or abusive relationship, many people don't understand the decisions that abuse victims survivors make. And I think you'll hear Sharon's whole entire story and you'll understand how someone has trouble leaving these relationships. And a lot of it stems from when she was younger. And I really just want to thank Sharon for for being here with us today because this is really not an easy story to tell. And Uh, Also, a big content warning. We do graphically discuss child sexual abuse when discussing Sharon's uh, childhood. And we also discuss suicidal ideation and suicide attempts in this episode. So with that warning out of the way, I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Sharon, the floor is now yours. Thank you. Um, and I want to thank everyone who's listening and who's shared before. I'm going to get emotional during this, so I hope you all bear with me. 
truly would not have gotten through the last six months of my life had it not been for this podcast. So many of your stories have resonated with me personally. And um, even if I couldn't relate to this specific story, just knowing that people are out there who are going through such hard times and, and finding it within themselves to heal is very encouraging. So thank you to those who shared. Um, my story really encompasses my whole life. So we're going to go through different sections of my life, which led me to my most extreme relationship with an overt narcissist uh, that I ended the relationship back in August of this year, this past year. So we'll just start with uh, the first part, which is my childhood. Um, both of my, both sides of my family were very good moral people. Um, nobody yelled at each other. There was no cursing. There was no drinking, drugs, anything like that. Just a nice, calm setting. I have no memories of anything bad. Uh, in the first part of my childhood um, until age seven when my father had an affair and it came out of nowhere. Um, it shocked my mother. They had never had a fight and she pretty much fell apart. Um, I remember watching her just, you know, you know crying on the ground and, and not understanding what was going on at that age. And I, I kind of just watched from the side wings and didn't really understand. Nobody was really talking to me about what was going on. I was upset that my dad wasn't going to be around, but it was made clear to me that I was still going to have a relationship with my father. So as soon as I knew that, I was okay. I did have a uh, visitation twice a week with him. And that was, that was like my, my most happy times. I was, I, I loved my father. I loved spending time with him. And uh, one day, uh, it was probably about a year later, my mother drops me off, goes to drop me off at his apartment. And I go and I knock on the door and he doesn't answer. And I knock again and I, I wait and he doesn't answer. So I go back down and I sit in the car with my mom and we wait and we talk. And we must have waited a really long time because I remember playing all kinds of games like I spy and just talking for a very long time. And finally, my mom says to me, do you, are you ready to leave? And I was just very, very confused. And I, I said, I guess. So we go home. And um, later that night, my mom says that my father's on the phone. So I go to the phone to talk to my dad. and. This moment, this moment right here in my life is the key PTSD for me. And I can talk, I've told this story so many times and I will fall apart every time and I'm going to try to keep it together now. It seems like a very simple thing, but this is where it all started for me. So I get on the phone with my dad and he tells me that he's sorry he wasn't there. And the reason why he wasn't there was because he was in California marrying the woman that he had an affair with. And that just shocked me. And something in me clicked and I felt like my whole world was going to fall apart. And I begged him not to do that. 
And he said that it was too late, that he, they, they were getting married, everything would be okay, nothing would change between us. But I just went in complete panic mode and um, begged him and begged him and begged him. And I just remember crying and my mom was watching me and she didn't hold me or anything. She just watched from the side. And finally he hung up the phone and I just fell apart. And that for me, has stayed with me my whole life, that fear of abandonment. Sorry. So anyway, um, picked myself up, got on with my life and went through, you know, just my day-to-day -day routine with my mom who had to pick herself up, go find a job. And eventually about maybe half a year later, she meets a man who would become my stepfather later on so up until this point what were the values i guess of the home or you know the principles that you might have been learning before this event my both sides of my family were strong christians um not churchy people but always gave back to the community um, treated people equally, just very, very good people. And, um, and yeah, it, morals were taught, nothing, nothing extreme or cultish, but just a, a good sense of, of, you know, being a good person. So this person, uh, my, my mother starts dating and after a while, she decides to bring me over to meet him and, and his, he has two children who are, um, teenagers. I'm age eight. Uh, the girl was five years older than me and the son was seven years older than me. So we go over to their apartment and my mom and her new boyfriend go off into another room and I walk back to where the bedrooms are and I, I open one of the doors and I see the kids sitting there and they're playing with little colored papers and I thought, oh, how pretty, I like the little colored papers. The boy stands up and he comes over to me and he grabs me by the shoulders and he puts me up against the wall. And he says, you're never going to tell anybody what you just saw. And I was horrified. I'd never been bullied or, or treated like that ever in my life. But I, I froze and I understood that I was not going to say anything. And I was like, okay, okay. Um, and then he immediately tossles my hair and says, you're such a cute kid. You're going to be our little short stuff take care of you so as scared as I was I felt like okay I I, I have a new life now I, I remember thinking this at, at age eight I have a new life now and I have to play along with it what I didn't know was the color papers were rolling papers and that they were doing drugs so as my mom continues to date their father she leaves me in their care to, to babysit me while they're on their dates. And they start giving me drugs and alcohol. And um, the first time that that happened, when my mom came back to pick me up, I was so sick. I, I remember just having a horrible headache and, and just waiting to throw up. And as soon as my mom walked in the door, I grabbed her and went to the bathroom and I threw up everywhere. And nothing changed. And as I got older and I thought back on that, I thought, um, there's no way she couldn't have smelled the marijuana. There's no way she couldn't have smelled the alcohol, but nothing changed. So I kept being left in their care. 
and my stepbrother started sexually abusing me. Um, he did it in a very uh, not physically harmful way. I had never experimented with myself before. I never felt any sexual feelings before him. So it it was arousing to me and it, it became something that I became fascinated by because it felt good. Um, all I knew was nobody was allowed to know. And I was, I was, you know, I, <laughs> I'd been, had that scared uh, into me. So I knew not to tell anybody, but I, it made me very, um, it made me seeking out that pleasure a lot. So I started like trying to, to do that with my neighborhood friends or, um, anytime I was with him, kind of, it became a very weird relationship where when we were together, it would never be brought up. It's kind of like there would be tension in the room and I would just wait to see if he would start it. And sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. And if he didn't, I remember feeling um, discarded, I guess, and confused, very confused. So um, I felt like what I was doing with him gave me worth. And there was an episode where one day he brought over about, I remember about four, four friends or so. And he, we went into the bedroom and he had all the boys in the room. And he told them that he had taught me how to give oral sex and then I was going to do it on all of them and I felt um there wasn't any part of me that felt like I didn't want to do this because I felt proud of myself um but still kind of confused now that other people were involved and I remember all the boys doing it except for one who seemed very uncomfortable and then he ended up leaving um but that really was instilling in me this sense of my worth came from what I had to offer sexually. And that was it because nobody was looking out for me. So I kind of have this double life going on now because I'm splitting my time between this side of my family and then going back to my, uh, my regular family who are still very <laughs> moral good people. And I very quickly became almost like um, like a split personality where I would be on my best behavior there and then go back and start acting like, like those two kids. Um, I did start struggling in school. I started feeling out of place. I, I didn't relate to people as much. Um, I saw my friends and how they were living their life. And it was like, I had this whole like world going on that these kids don't know about and um so I started feeling kind of isolated that, that I was living this life that I had to hide my stepfather was the raging alcoholic he actually had his children taken away from him at one point when we were there and my mother actually adopted this the kids and his son came and lived with us where he continued to abuse me in, in my home um and he was constantly getting in trouble with the law, going into detention homes and stuff. And, and one day um, I got off the school bus and he, I heard this rustling in the bushes and he, he had been running from the police. He had stolen a car and they were looking for him. And he pops out of the bushes. He says, 
you know, let me take you to where I've been living. So we go, and I lived in a, this rural area outside of the mountains. So we go walking down this trail, and he had built this fort uh, that he had been staying in that was next to a waterfall. I thought, yeah, this to me was cool. This was an adventure, and I'm having a great time. I'm happy to see him again. And um, he takes me over to the waterfall, and he says, this is where I take my shower and stuff, and, and I'm, you know, just having fun. And next thing I know, he pulls a knife out on me. And he says, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to kill you. And of course, I'm like freaking out. Uh, I start shaking. I'm really scared. I start crying. I start begging for him not, not to kill me. And probably lasts maybe five minutes of doing that. And all of a sudden, he drops the knife. He says, I feel really bad. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to kill you. He comes and he gives me a hug. He said, everything's going to be okay. And I trusted him again. I felt like, okay, you know, this was the only guy who seemed to be watching out for me. Um, so life went on. So we moved to Florida. Um, my stepfather proposed to my mom and, and they moved to Florida and I was devastated to leave my father. Um, I would call him every morning, collect. I would wake up at six in the morning and call him, collect for a year, begging him to let me come live with him. I, I didn't tell him about the drugs. I didn't tell him about the sexual abuse, but I did tell him about my stepfather being a, an alcoholic and being um, mean and violent. Um, but he just kept telling me that it was better for me to be with my mom, that everybody said it was better for me to be with my mom. I now know now. <laughs> That my stepmother, who didn't have children, is, was very influential and not wanting me to live there. Um, and she's her own narcissist in her own way. So things, things, you know, went back and forth between me trying to be really good and starting over and getting good grades and hanging with good friends to a really bad fight happening at home and me losing hope. And at this point, my stepbrother was put in jail and he pretty much just was gone. Um, my life for a long time. Um, had a really bad fight with my stepfather who threatened to kill me. And at that point, my father did fly down to pick me up. He took me back home to his home. And I thought, great, I'm going to be living here now. And I was happy. And a week later, I was sent back. Um, and at that point, I really just gave up. It was weird because my school didn't reach out to me. No guidance counselors reached out to me. Nobody was talking to me. Nobody was trying to find out what was going on. Um, I stopped going to school. I, I had to go to summer school for like a few years just to make up for the time I missed. And I really just started getting bad. And um, when I was 13, I was spending the summer with my father because I would spend summers and holidays with him. I was out of control. And my dad, we, we were, I was raised in the South. Um, Corporal punishment was pretty common back then. Um, my dad, who was a very gentle man, pretty much went nuts on me and beat me with a belt when I was 13 years old. And I had black and blue marks all over my body. And I remember hiding behind speakers in the house after it was done. I don't even think anybody was home. And I had music playing. And I remember just hiding behind the speakers and just feeling like, I just didn't fit anywhere. And I didn't know, like, how to live life. 
and I started dreaming of ways to get out and I wanted to be an actress. I just wanted, I wanted to be famous and, you know, it, just this whole like fantasy life as a way to cope, I guess. I wanted to be special and, and because I felt different and I felt like I was an outsider and, and um, so I really started just focusing on this, uh, this path for myself. And I was fortunate enough when I was 14, I met a mentor who um, started training me as a dancer and he had been a professional dancer and he got me an audition at a, a boarding school that was a performing arts school that was away from my home. I would have had to, to leave and live there and I got in. And, and so that's how, when I was 16 years old, I, I got out of the house. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm living there and this is kind of this strange dynamic with my family now where I, nobody's checking in on me still, but they, they take care of my basic needs. I'm taken care of, but I'm not taken care of, I guess, emotionally. I'm not taken care of. They do pay for whatever I had to pay to live there or whatever. But there were, there were times when I didn't have enough money to eat. And I guess I didn't think to call and ask for it because I just, I was so used to being ignored that I, I just kind of went along. I remember eating most of my meals out of like a vending machine for a year. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I did well, I, I, I did well. And, and I had a teacher who asked me if I was planning to go to college, never thought about college. And my parents never told me about taking an SAT or, or applying to college. And uh, the teacher helped me and I took my SAT, I had no idea what I was doing, got a horrible grade, but I ended up getting a scholarship to go as a performer. And, um, and I did, I, I left and, um, in college, my very first day, I met my very first uh, long-term boyfriend who was a gift from God. This guy, I, I, it, it was, he's truly my soulmate um, to this day. We're best friends. He's like a brother to me. We're true soulmates. Um, he listened to my story. I never really told my story to anybody and he made me feel loved and he um, just treated me wonderfully. And he was two years older than me. So we, you know, were inseparable during my first years of college. And then when it came time for him to leave, I went into full panic mode. Um, now I did have panic attacks with him. Anytime I felt like he didn't want to be with me, it would, it would trigger me. I would have great anxiety and I would feel like he was going to leave me. Um, but because he was such a good, kind person, he was very attentive to that. And I didn't know this until um, a couple years later, but the first time that happened, he actually walked around and watched me through my window in my dorm and he saw me breaking down. And he said, he realized that I had this like inner struggle that was very deep and he felt really bad for me. And so he was very cautious with me because of that. Um, but when it came time for him to leave, I. I felt like I was going to die. I felt like I couldn't live without him. And something clicked in me where I just shut him off. Um, I stayed in contact with him, but I started looking at other men. And I started using sex and trying to um, lure other men to me to get attention. 
and it was all about sex. Um, kind of did that for a while, uh, for a couple years, even though we were still supposedly together. And I ended up moving in with him um, in New York after I graduated. And we kind of went through this period where he wanted to be with me, but I started feeling like I was having sex with my brother, I guess. It all became very confusing to me. It was very icky because he loved me and, and the sex. And, I, and, I, and when I thought about sex and I, I immediately thought about my stepbrother and, and it, it was all very, very confusing. And I didn't even know how to process it. I still had not ever gone to a therapist, no idea how to deal with it. And so we ended up basically breaking up, um, but never separating. We still lived together. We still cared very much about each other. Um, so I went through a few years of dating and, and again, it was all about sex. All my whole worth was about sex. If somebody broke up with me, I felt like, even if I didn't like spend that much time with them, I felt like my world was collapsing. It was very dramatic. I felt like I was going to die. Like I needed to kill myself. It was, it was, um, I just couldn't handle it. And when I was in my, uh, mid to late twenties, um, I met someone who would become my, my husband. And I was attracted to him. I was moving, I was moving out of the area. I, did, I didn't need to be in New York anymore. I was no longer performing and I was spending a lot of money living there. So I was moving out of the area and I met this person and, um, he is my covert <laughs> narcissist. Um, I was attracted to him because he was a business owner. He was a go-getter. He had one of those big cell phones in the car and a suitcase. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know anyone that had a cell phone yet. Like he was you know, always on the phone making things happen. And, and I thought, you know, I was, I had been surrounded by artists who never had a penny to their name up until this point. So it was, it was attractive to me. I was not, I did not feel um, any chemistry towards him, just uh, an attraction to that kind of go get it attitude. I would go into his business. He owned a restaurant. And so he knew me from coming in there. And one day I went in there and he, he called me over to talk to him and he looked me in the eye and he said, now I never really had any conversation with him before. He looked me in the eye and he said, I'm going to marry you one day. And like okay I've never had anybody say that haha <laughs> that's really funny okay so I just laugh it off um I knew that he was married he said that they were getting divorced that it was amicable he asked me if I wanted to work with him in his he had a catering business if I wanted to work part-time with them once in a while I said sure I was actually working with his wife at the time who was pleasant to me but I mean didn't really talk much to me. So I, I figured what he was saying was true, that they were amicably getting divorced and she didn't seem to have any problem with me being there. Um, I learned out later that was not, not the case. So anyway, before I found that out, um, we end up the first time we, we have sex, I tell him, you know, make sure he said he didn't have protection. I was said, okay, make sure that, you know, you, you pull out. So last thing I want to do is get pregnant. Well, sure enough, he doesn't pull out. He does his thing and literally says, oops. <laughs> and uh, 
plan kind of panicking a little bit and sure enough, turns out I'm pregnant. So trying to figure out uh, what's going on. I start asking him more, okay, what's going on with your, your marriage? Oh, he's telling me that the lawyers are involved, the paperwork's being done, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then one night I have a miscarriage and I call him up and he's not answering the phone. And so I keep calling and, and finally he answers, can't talk right now. And I explain what's going on and he basically hangs up on me. So I'm just a mess and I'm very upset. And the next day he calls me and apologizes and we start dating again. And he's trying to get me to let him move in with me. But there's something in me that, that says, no, we're not doing that. He needs to get divorced before that happens, or at least get separated. So he does move out. He gets his own place. Um, but we're still seeing each other. And right away, he starts talking to me about, I should look into buying a home. And never occurred to me to buy a home. I'd rented my whole life up until this point. Um, I'm like probably around like 27 years old at this point, 28. So he really starts talking to me a lot about how important it is to buy a home. And so we start driving around and looking at homes. And then um, a couple months later, he proposes to me. At this point, he has you know, everything's done with the wife. Um, he proposes to me and he really starts heavy with the home. Now he has no credit. He has no money. He wants me to talk to my father about getting a down payment so that we can get this home. But he, he presents it more that it's for me, that this is something I should do because I'm just throwing my money away on renting and blah, blah, blah. So I find a home. Yes, my dad puts down the down payment. And a few months later, we get married. And uh, everything was pretty, pretty good up until the night before the wedding. And my maid of honor was here with me and he was staying in a hotel and I spoke to him on the phone and he spoke to me in a way that I had never heard him speak to me. It was very nasty sarcasm and it actually made me cry. <laughs> I was very shocked and um, I don't even remember what it was about. It couldn't have been about anything really important, but I was just shocked at how he was speaking to me. And when I got off the phone, I told my maid of honor and I, she said, well, you know, maybe he's just nervous. Maybe, you know, he's just got a lot on his mind and he's just not himself right now. So I'm like, okay. So next day we get married, get on the plane, for, you know, to go to the honeymoon and all of that. And the honeymoon was an absolute train wreck. He was nasty. He would, it, it was, and I remember thinking at the time, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, it was like, where is this guy? <laughs> and I knew. He was a totally different person. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? And, um, but, you know, I wasn't going to think of getting divorced or anything. I just got married. So I'm trying to make it work, doing what I can to make it work. Right away, I, I, I decided I want to get pregnant. So we start, we start having babies. Uh, I have my, my son and um, he had had two kids prior, but still I thought he would, pay a little more attention to me. It was my first child. I was disappointed that he didn't even want to like feel my belly or listen, listen to the baby or talk to the baby. And I expressed this to him and he just basically ignored anything I had to say, just blew it off. Um, 
And I felt like to him, it was like no big deal that it was just kind of old hat. And then he told me something that was really shocking to me. He told me that, and he told this to me in a way that he was almost proud of it. Um, that the night that his daughter was born, who was his second child, that he actually wasn't there when she was being delivered because he was sleeping with another woman. And I'm not sure why he told me this, but I just became disgusted by him. And like, how could you do that when your child is being born? It, even worse, how can you sit here and tell me this story as if you're proud of it? So it's it's like the more time I spent with him, the more I realized that this man was just a disgusting human being. I was trying my best to keep my marriage together because of what I went through as a kid. I swore I was never going to get divorced. My kids were never going to go through that. I had this horrible fear that my kids were going to go through what I went through as a kid. And I was going to do everything in my power to protect them. So divorce never entered my mind, but I kept trying to make it work. And the more I tried, the more I tried to get through to him about like bad behavior, you know, him being mean, the way he would deal with things. Uh, it's almost like I was writing a playbook for him to let him know things that upset me because then he would choose to do those things. Um, and that kind of became our relationship. In the beginning, I, I had explained to him about my childhood and about the sex and what had happened with sex with my boyfriend. And, and then I was confused and concerned. And so I did start going to therapy and he actually came to therapy and, um, the therapist gave us a book. I forget what it was called. This was this was back in like the mid 90s. There was this really famous book about sexual abuse. And then there was like a workbook for the partner. And so she gave us that. And he said that he was all on board. He would go through it so that he could understand what I was going through. But he never opened the book. When we were home, he never he never did anything. And he was always wanting to have sex with me even if we would have like a really horrible fight. And I just, in the beginning I would do it, but then I started feeling more and more disgusted. And it was just getting to the point where I, I didn't even want him to touch me. And I would try to explain this to him and he didn't care. It was like, I need sex. You're not giving me sex. Something needs to happen here. And I, all I would say was, I just, I need conversation. I need you to hear me. I need you to understand, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have sex with you, but all you do is treat me badly. He was an extremely sarcastic person. Um, just nasty with his sarcasm. He would belittle anything that I liked. If I was watching a show, he would say, Oh, what a stupid show. You know, he, um, my past life in as a performer in theater I was still doing as a hobby and he would put all those people down that were involved in that um you know all actors are full of themselves they're, you know they're, they're egomaniacs they're just full of themselves they're stupid they don't know anything about the world and so anything with my life became just something that he would put down I had actually when I was in uh, New York became involved with cooking and really fell in love with cooking. I actually went to culinary school, had a great passion for cooking. And I completely lost that with him because he would make fun of everything I made. 
Um, so he was whittling me down and, and, and really just taking away all the things that brought me joy and expecting me still to, to feel any kind of sexual desire for him. Um, so eventually he decided to start going outside of the, of the marriage, which I did not know about at the time. I tried to get through to him and explain in detail. Um, I would give him like kind of a, a basic line of what happened to me sexually as a kid. And then he wouldn't respond. So then I would give him more detail and he wouldn't respond. And so like that episode that I talked about where the boys were all brought in and I did the oral sex. And I, I had actually never told anybody about that before. I thought for sure, if he hears this story, he's going to care and feel bad for me. And there was nothing in his eyes. And that really scared me. I just felt like this man didn't care at all about me. He just wanted his needs met. Then he starts uh, using the children, things that matter to me about the children, to get at me. Christmas was very important to me. It wasn't to him. And I would go all out for Christmas with my kids. And I would be up at all hours of the night trying to make you know, things special. And, and you know, the, the Santa Claus surprise and, and everything magical. And, and he would just go to bed at 8 o'clock on Christmas Eve and let me do all the work. Um, stuff like that. Vacations. If it was something that I was planning or with my family, he would get injured somehow right before or something would happen where we would be late every single time i didn't think he was doing it on purpose but it was it just started to become so literally every time it's like what the heck is going on here um we were struggling financially we had uh we owned a business and sometimes were very tough for us yet he would go buy unnecessary things that he wanted and he would lie about it. He said he would say they were given as gifts. When he started having the affairs, which again, I didn't know about at the time, but he had hired a personal trainer and uh, we were not paying our bills. Yeah, he had a personal trainer and he lied about that. He said that the trainer was doing it for free just to basically um, be training somebody in the gym to make them other people want to use him, which I found that was a lie. Then one of the, the crowning moments, um, Somebody in our town wanted him to join the Masonic Lodge. And the Masonic Lodge is a community of men, uh, the Masons, who do a lot of good for the community. When they accept somebody into the lodge, they come over, they interview the spouse, they interview the children. They supposedly really care that this is a stand-up human being morally. And um, so we went through that. And when they came over, I said, well, my concerns are this, um, that we're struggling financially and this is going to take a lot of his time because he, he would hire other people to work in our business rather than work himself. He basically would just spend his day going to the coffee shop, talking to people. He liked to be the big man of the town, yet we weren't paying our bills. But he was brought in and he went up the ranks and he became like the grandmaster of the Masonic Lodge and everybody's looking up to him like he's this great leader in the community. There would be articles done on our business that I was 50-50 in, and um, he wouldn't tell me about the articles. He would show up. They would interview him, take pictures of him. He'd be in the paper. Everybody always thought he owned the business, not me. Um, just purposefully excluding me and, and, and making things hard for me. If I would get upset, 
zero empathy. I could be crying on the floor. He would just step right over me. He was annoyed by me. He wouldn't get physical, but he would corner me. And I didn't know what reactive abuse was at the time. Uh, I, I didn't know that phrase until this year, but I knew what I was going through. He would make me rage and I would become like the Tasmanian devil because he would literally stand over me and smile this evil smile and just say sarcastic things to me. I would go nuts. Um, and yeah, I would hit him. I would go nuts um, just to get away from him. Once I was away from him, I would stop. Uh, so finally, he admits to cheating with numerous women because one of their husbands found out and said he was either going to tell me or my husband was. I basically am just going through day to day, raising my kids, wanting to provide the best that I can for my family, for my children. Still not going to get divorced, not going to do it. <laughs> So after you find out about the cheating, how are you feeling and how does your relationship change inside the home? Um, basically, I was almost relieved when I found out he was having an affair because to me that closed a book. Um, I was not going to be his romantic partner. I couldn't stand him. I was going to be a business partner with him, with our children and our business and co-parent and I didn't have to worry about having sex with him thank god <laughs> no more and um that's how I dealt with it um tried to keep the peace at home I tried uh as much as I could but I was adamant about making sure my children saw that when he started speaking to me in a sarcastic tone I stood up for myself I did not want them to think that was okay so I would stand up for myself in front of them. And um, there were fights because I wasn't going to turn the other cheek for that. I was not going to allow them to think that was okay. So, I mean, it was not, it was not easy. It was not good. Um, but my kids were involved in a lot of stuff and I was go, go, go with them all the time. Um, so made it work. He was also stealing money. Um, he was hiding cash from our business. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. Um, and at this point, my mother passes away and leaves me an inheritance. And he talks me into using that money to pay off the house, buy us new cars, pay off a, a great debt that we had to the business. And I did. I never thought about, you know, this is just my money. Like this, okay, I was going to do what was good for the family. And, and I, I did. I paid that stuff off. But it's funny because um, there were some IRAs, some savings that my mom had, and I split them up, put college funds together for both of my children. And then there was this last one. And I was on the phone with a woman um, as I was handling the estate. And she said, okay, how do you want to, how do you want to handle this last one? And I was going to put it under both my, my husband's name and I heard this voice say no in my head <laughs> and I I said and, and I had told the girl you know just put it both of our names and I heard no and I said you know what actually and it's funny because I felt bad and embarrassed saying it because I'm married but I said you know what let's just leave that in my name thank god I did that <laughs> 
because I would have been penniless at this point in my life. Um, that was the only thing that saved me. Um, so at least I had that money that he couldn't touch. So I found out later on, um, he had been taking, I would pull money from that account. He was actually taking that money and putting it in a, a savings for himself that I didn't know about. He would tell me that he was moving money around from the, the accounts that we did have established prior to my mother passing away. And I honestly didn't pay attention to that stuff because I don't know about investing and I still trusted him at that point. I became friends with a therapist and I remember asking her one day, uh, we were going to a show together. And I, I remember asking her, I know this sounds mean and I don't mean it that way, but I'm really curious, I'm really wondering, is it possible that my husband could be on the spectrum of autism. And the reason why I asked that was because I knew that uh, some people that were autistic had a hard time making eye contact, um, connecting emotionally. And I was trying to understand what was going on. And, and I said, he has these traits. If I'm sad, he doesn't seem affected by it he can't look me in the eye. And so I was trying to understand what was going on with him. So now we come to kind of an interlude with my son. All right. So at this point, my son's around like age eight and he starts, he had been, he had been exhibiting some odd behavior prior to this, but really didn't know what was going on. And, um, he starts behaving similar to his father around this time. He starts referring to us by our first names, won't call us mom and dad. He starts uh, using sarcasm. He's very cruel to his sister, who's younger than him. He's always getting like, um, trying to get the attention. And even if it's bad attention, it doesn't matter. Anything to get attention. And no matter what we did, punishment-wise, it didn't matter to him. Um, he really was running our household and had everybody walking around on eggshells. And I started seeing a similarity between the two of them. And I wondered if there was some kind of mental disorder that was going on. Because I knew that my husband's father, my, my husband had said his father was crazy, is what he said. Now, he had died before I met him, so I never met him. My husband did not have a relationship. He had four siblings. He did not have a relationship with any of them or his mother. He said that he was the only child out of that family that was abused. So I had felt sorry for him for that. But as I got to know him, and as I started seeing how my son was behaving, I started thinking, well, I wonder if he says he was abused, but I wonder if he was behaving badly and was just getting punished a lot more for his behavior. Um, but I, I, I didn't know what was going on. And no matter what we did for my son to, to try to punish him, he, it didn't matter. And as he got older and turned into the teens, he started using drugs and very erratic, impulsive behavior. Um, he stole my car in the middle of the night and drove two hours north in the middle of an ice storm. And thank God the police saw him swerving. And that's how he uh, 
um, out before he got in a car accident. Um, he started multiple suicide attempts, multiple drug overdoses. He was in and out of hospitals numerous times. And much to my horror, the first time it happened, and then repeatedly, the system is completely lame and screwed up. They would take him in for basically a night or two, call us up for our parental conference, and then explain that they were going to release him in a day or two. And I would beg them to to keep him, to treat him, to find out what was going on. And and they basically had a question that they would ask him, are you a harm to yourself or others? And as long as he said no, they would let him go. No matter what I said, I had no control as a parent to help my son. And this just became a, an absolute nightmare. We ended up getting a great team of therapists that came to our house. There was there were, there were three people. There was the case manager, the main therapist who would come over to the home and take my son out uh, once, sometimes twice a week. And then there was his assistant who would come over twice and sometimes three times a week. So pretty much they were involved in almost every day in our life. We would have family sessions with them. And they were shocked as well to see how screwed up the system was and how nobody was helping my son. And one time my son, we were getting ready to go away for, for Easter break, which we desperately needed. And my son slid his wrists and was in the hospital. And this was a day before we were supposed to leave. And the therapist called me up and he said, I'm dropping something off for you. I want you to read it. And he dropped off the, the DSM book, which is the diagnostic book for psychology, psychiatry. And he had bookmarked borderline personality disorder. And he said, I want you to read this. And yes, my son had almost every, every line of that. And one of the words in there was narcissism. And he said, you need to go with your daughter on your vacation. And I said, I can't go. My son just tried to kill himself. He's in the hospital. He said, he's manipulating you with this. He's using this to manipulate you. And he'll be okay. So I did. I took my daughter. And at that point, I realized that I've got my husband and my son, who are almost like one and the same as far as how they treat my daughter and me. And I really went into trying to do the best I could for my daughter, even though I was doing everything I could to save my son. It was completely out of my hands. I had no control over him. I would, even though I would do anything I could, I had no control over him. At this point, my husband was blatantly uh, sleeping with another woman and spending half the time at her house, half the time in mine. He would come home and sleep in our bed. And I, I started sleeping on a couch downstairs because I refused to sleep in the same bed with him anymore. And um, it was just really, really bad and really, really stressful. And I was crying every night. And I always went to the gym regularly. I was not like crazy about it, but I, I took care of myself and I started really gaining weight. Um, and one day his therapist came to me and he said, I, I want to talk to you to see if, if your son would be interested in doing this race. It's obstacle course racing and it's, it's done in the mountains and there's all kinds of obstacles and there's a whole philosophy behind it, which is about overcoming obstacles. 
And the therapist did this and he wanted to see if my son would do one with him. So I brought it to my son's attention and he didn't have any interest. But as I researched it, I realized I needed this in my life. So I called up the therapist and I said, I need this. My soul is dying and I need this. And it completely changed my life and I think saved me. Um, I started training for it. I started becoming strong. I started becoming healthy. And at that time, my husband started making fun of me in front of the children. He was just basically breaking me down because he saw me getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And I started tolerating less of his crap. So we ended up getting separated. Um, at this point, my daughter was in high school. And I thought, you know what? They know what's going on. They see this now. I can't hide it from them anymore. They're not little kids. They're not going to be at the mercy of somebody who, who could abuse them like I went through. Um, and I realized at this point it was more harm done to the kids than it was to, you know, to, to leave. I had, I had the security of, of the money from my mother. I owned the home. Um, well, so did my husband at the time, but I felt like we would be okay. So at this point, <laughs> I discuss it and, um, tell him I want a divorce. And he cries and he comes to me begging to not go through with it. It's the first time I've seen him cry other than over our son. Promises he's going to change. I'm adamant that it's, it's going to happen. Then he switches gears and says, well, at least can you wait until our daughter graduates high school? And as soon as he said that, I, the first thing I thought was cha-ching, cha-ching. He's going to blow through my money. <laughs> you know, he wants more time. So I was like, nope, no, that's not going to happen. Um, and uh, we tried mediation initially. We're like, okay, we, we finally agree. We're both going to go through with the divorce. We try mediation. And as we're sitting in, in the media with the mediator, he's being his normal self. And I'm watching her reaction to him. And I'm seeing horror on her face. And he will say things that are so stupid and she will respond to him like, are you an idiot? <laughs> like, how can you say some of this stuff? And it was all about him, him, him. And, um, and you could, I'm sitting there like, oh my God, somebody sees this. Like, it's a miracle. It's not just me. I, I'm not crazy. Like somebody sees who this person is. And one of the worst things he said where she really went off on him was he said, and I had explained to her about my son and, and all that we've been going through with my son and how he has a mental illness and he keeps making these suicide attempts and he's in and out of hospitals. And we're talking about, about child support and, and you know what we're going to do with the kids. And he says, well, when my son turns 18, I don't have to pay for him anymore, right? <laughs> and she looks at him and her jaw drops. And she says, your wife here just explained to me all the hell that your son has been going through and, and all the hell that you've been going through trying to get him help. 
And right now your main concern is that when he turns 18, you're not going to have to pay anymore for him. And at that point he was done. No more mediation. She's on my side. I hired her. We secretly knew each other, blah, blah, blah. All right. So, which was not true at all. So we ended up having to go the route of the lawyer. During this time, he comes in with his girlfriend. They steal stuff from my house. They steal my personal journals. When I was in my 20s, writing about my whole childhood experience. And the way I knew this was because his girlfriend called or texted me and made a comment about something that had happened to me. And I thought, how could she have known that? Because the way she worded it, it was, I don't ever remember talking to my husband about that. And I immediately went and I knew that they had stolen stuff from the house at this point, but not my, not my journals. Cause I kept those hidden. And I immediately went and looked and my whole box of journals from that point in my life was gone and talk about <laughs> feeling violated. Um, that was just unbelievable to me. And so I told the lawyer and they did have to return them. They did have to return the other stuff. Um, but at this point in time, I'm going through this. He's out of the house. He's living with her full time now. I'm dealing with my daughter and I'm dealing with my son who sometimes I'll get a call. He's I got a call. He's asleep in the middle of the road and the police picked him up and can I come get him? And he's, he's on heroin. And I'm like, what do I do? Take him home? And they're like, well, yeah, we can't, we can't do anything with him. So I'm driving home with my son who's on heroin in the car and, and just dealing with this all alone. And it was just extremely taxing and I'm trying to be strong and you know, do what I can. It was a very, very hard time for me. So eventually I decided to go on a dating site. After the divorce happens, I guess, how are you feeling about yourself? And when you eventually do start dating, what is... I guess the idea in your head around it that you wanted to meet someone new or was it maybe you just didn't want to be alone? Uh, what was, I guess, your frame of mind around everything after divorce and then, you know, going into relationship? At this point, I, I had turned just turned 50 and I was in the best shape of my life. I mean, I had a six pack. I was ripped. I was... I'd never looked this good in my life. I was working hard, you know, doing this racing and, and just working out. I, I also became a personal trainer. I, I was really, really working hard, eating well. Um, and I had not had sex in 10 years. And that side of me woke up. So I was feeling very, you know, um, passionate about, you know, wanting to have a lover. and and But I was never the kind of person even though when I was younger, the sex was how I identified myself. I never enjoyed that. Like I never wanted to just go out and have one night stands. Like that's not who I was. I always wanted somebody to love me, somebody to be there for me and have a long-term relationship, someone I could love. That's what I desired. 
And so I really wanted to try to find that. But that sexual awakening was strong. So I meet this guy online. He's he's 10 years older than me. So, and actually a couple of days apart, birthdays. So I just turned 50. He was turning 60. And um, on his site, on his bio, on the dating site, he said he was a widower. So I thought, wow, you know, that's, I feel, feel bad for him right away, right? The first, the first line that he sent me on the, on the dating site was, quote, beautiful, fit, intelligent, a mom, which I later discovered was word for word what he would send every other woman he reached out to. But I never had anybody speak to me like that. Like he love bombed with the compliments. Um, the first phone conversation we have, he has a very loud brass voice. And it reminds me of my stepfather. Now I know he is a South Philly Sicilian, which is um, a stereotype of the whole mafia scene, um, which he did grow up in on the streets uh, with very prominent mafia types, um, although he was not involved in that. He says, because everyone knew that he was extremely intelligent, and they did not want him going down that road, that he was going to go to college. And he, so he did not go that road. But he had a very um, booming voice and aggressive voice. And when I spoke to him on the phone, he, he apparently had just gotten a new phone and he was aggravated with it. And he kind of started yelling at the phone during our first conversation. And my mind was saying, hang up on him. Red flags, red flags, red flags. Hang up on him. But then a part of me felt this adrenaline rush and there was something about him. And I, I remember thinking, I can handle this. And it was this pull of, of, of things going on inside me of not good for you. Oh, I can handle this. This will be exciting. There's something exciting about him. He was, he was right away. He was great at texting calling, uh, very kind, always responded immediately. If, if I called him, if he didn't answer, he called me right back. Um, again, the pet names, the compliments. Um, I was so desperately wanting somebody to care about me, to love me, to understand what I was going through with my son. And I just felt like he, he, he made me feel that he was that person. Um, the first time I met him, I, I remember walking into the restaurant where I met him and, and saying, thank God, because I was physically attracted to him. He was extremely intelligent, confidence through the roof. He's a gentleman. He made me feel special. He, he presented himself very well. However, during that lunch, which is what we were having, um, he was talking very loudly. And I got the sense that he wanted people to hear what he was saying. He started making jokes um, to kind of like um, make me feel uncomfortable, but in a fun way, like he was just messing with me. 
saying things that were inappropriate, um, not insulting, but inappropriate for somebody else to hear, like maybe about sex or whatever. And I remember being slightly mortified um, and looking to see if, if they were hearing. And he would say things and immediately look to his right or his left to, to see if there was a response. And I have to say, I was like, I'm not sure about this, but okay. And we end that date. He gives me just a little peck of a kiss. He's a gentleman. And he's, he looks me in the eye. He says, I really like you. Like he's shocked. And for two weeks, he does this when we're talking. Now we live an hour away, so we're not seeing each other regularly. Um, but for about two weeks, he can, he completely like, he repeats this. I really, really like you. Like he's shocked. And he says, I waited four years for you. He was on the dating sites for four years, he says. So I learn about his, his uh, first wife. They were childhood sweethearts. Um, they got married. And when their son was three years old, she was diagnosed with a horrible disease and was given just a, a few months to live. And she actually ended up living till their son was 16 years old. So apparently during this time, his life was, he, he was one of the top 100 business owners in Philadelphia. There were articles written on him. He, he told me he had a master's degree from Wharton University, which I found out, no, he does not. Um, his explanation of that was he went through everything. He wrote the dissertation, but in the end, he said, fuck it. I'm not going to present it. Who gives a shit? And so he never finished it, but <laughs> whatever. That's why he didn't have the paper or the degree or whatever. So he says that he made millions of dollars and that he was you know, really hot in his company. Um, and he ended up losing all his money because of his wife being sick and all the medical bills and everything. So the first day that I met him at, at, at that luncheon, I tell him about my son. Um, I realized that if somebody was going to be in my life, this was going to be a part of it. And if they couldn't handle it, I wanted them to, to have the opportunity to, to leave. But I wanted to be honest about what was going on in my life. I didn't want to hide anything. I told him about my ex and, and how my ex uh, tried to steal my inheritance. So he knew that I had money. From my mom and he was very supportive of me with everything for my son which i so desperately needed he understood my pain um as a mother because to him he said nothing is more important than your children family is everything which is why he was so attracted to me because i loved my children so much um he also told me that um because of what he went through with his wife he had not had sex in 10 years as well so that was something we had in common. He understood what it was like to be in a sexless marriage and that frustration. He understood and validated everything that I was going through. Um, he was extremely hot for me, very passionate. When I, when I started researching um, about narcissists, one thing that, that, that was kind of discouraging to me was that I, I kept coming across that narcissists always have play a victim role somehow um that they're a victim of something and i could never see that with him because he was such an over-the-top 
overconfident, egomaniac. But as I started writing all of this out for, for this podcast today, I realized that his role of victim was his his wife, her illness. And that was his escape for losing money, losing the money that he supposedly made. Anyway, he he also used her as, as an excuse for because of what he saw her go through. He had no tolerance for weakness in others. So the way he frames his wife being sick, she was so strong. She gave everything. He's kind of giving this bend over backward tactic or an effort on things type of tactic to throw at you in the future. He's telling you through this tragic event uh, what he expects from people. And he's actually triangulating you against his uh, dead ex-wife. It's really quite the spin. And it's a really pretty interesting con if you look at it from the mechanics of how it's all done. And to hear you say that, just, yeah, I needed to hear that said. Absolutely. So we'll get back to that again in a bit. Um, So early on, the conversation was very, very sexual, um, a lot of sexting. And um, like I said, because we lived an hour apart, um, we sexted regularly. He would talk to me. He made you feel like you could tell him everything. He had no filter. He was self-explained, you know, no filter. I say what I feel. I don't give a shit what anybody thinks of me. You can tell me anything. I will not judge you. Tell me your deepest secret fantasies, you know, all of this stuff. So I felt so like sexually safe with him. And I thought, oh my God, this guy, maybe this is the guy I can, I can both love and be sexual with. Maybe this is the combination that I needed in my life. He watched porn a lot and he would uh, he would send me a lot of porn clips to show me what he liked. The second date that we meet, we meet at a restaurant and he kisses me for the first time, uh, a real kiss. And it was just amazing. I just melted in his arms. It was the perfect kiss. And afterwards, we went for a walk on the beach and he's just all over me to the point where I'm getting a little uncomfortable because there's children around, there's families around, it's daylight. And he's, I mean, he's like rubbing up against me. He's all over me. And so I'm kind of like laughing it off a little bit, feeling those thoughts, ah, this is a bit much. And then I'm pushing them out of my head. Again, I'm feeling special. Um, There's so much passion. I'm feeling desired. I'm feeling, I'm told how intelligent I am, how beautiful I am. Our third date, we... We go for a walk in the park, same thing. He's all over me. He's, he's trying to undress me. There's literally kids running around and I'm like, stop, like, this is crazy, stop. Um, it's almost like he got off on making me uncomfortable. Like he thought it was a joke. And um, we would talk about that later where before things got really bad and he says, oh, I was just messing with you. And again, I was happy to have a man that, that wanted me. And at this point, I start seeing some strange behavior. His car, for instance, uh, his car is an absolute disgusting mess. I would later be told by his ex-girlfriend, who's the mother of his daughter, that she was horrified. They have a relationship because they share custody with the daughter, that he picked me up in that car. She was horrified that he did that. Um, It was filthy, crumbs everywhere. 
And, but he says to me, so I'm thinking, okay, he's a, he, he owns his own business. This man's 60 years old, but yet his car looks like this. Okay. okay. Well, he says it's for work. So there's no reason to clean it. He's throwing all kinds of construction stuff in and out. All right. So I believe him, even though it just seems like a red flag to me. I thought, no, all right. He has a reason for that. So I let that go. Next strange thing <laughs> of all things, sneezing. So we're on a date and the first time I see him sneeze, he sneezes, we're in public. He sneezes very loudly. And this grown man literally stomps his feet and says, God damn it, motherfucker. I fucking hate sneezing. And he sneezes like three times in a row. And every time he sneezes, he, he's like saying this for the world to hear, stomping his feet on the ground. And I'm watching with in like mild horror. Is this funny? Like, what am I dealing with here? And so I laugh at him and I think, okay, this is just bizarre. And he just, and he, he doesn't apologize. He just says, I fucking hate sneezing. And I'm like, okay, so, all right. I've just seen a quirk that this guy has. Okay. So this is a quirk, kind of funny, whatever. Okay. Another thing we're driving along. We still haven't had sex yet. And he just turns to me and he says you shave that thing right I'm like excuse me I'm like are you asking me um okay whatever all right so I thought okay that's a little inappropriate but um I just laugh it off again all right when driving he's constantly cursing out all the drivers around him complete road rage he's a psychotic driver and also in addition to everybody around him being horrible drivers and not knowing what they're doing Every person that we see, because we're in a city, so there's a lot of people walking along, he insults how fat they are, how they dress, something about their appearance. And that, to me, I think was the first thing that I was like, oh, because that is not who I am. I do not judge people like that. And that was really the first thing that made me think, oh, kind of feel sad that maybe this guy is not, you know, who I should be with because I can't imagine being with somebody that, that acts like that. But then superhero me thinks, eh, you know, maybe I can get through to him and maybe I can change that in him. A lot of anger. Um, and he explains that this is when he tells me about his childhood, that he grew up, his father was a psychopath, his father... He got pissed off at somebody in the neighborhood, would show up with an axe and hack the door open. And that there was just a lot of uh, violence, physical violence. And he would brag to me about some of the things that he had done when he was younger, like he was a big golfer. And he was telling me the story about how somebody hit into them on the golf course, meaning they hit the ball when they were still within range. And he walked up to the guy and he punched him in the face and knocked him out. And again, I'm thinking horrified. But then again, I'm thinking, wow, this guy, he was with his son and he was protecting his son and he's, he's a great protector. And I've never been with anybody like this. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm always rationalizing this bad behavior. He talks constantly about his achievements. He's opened up hundreds of chain restaurants across the country. All he does is talk about himself. Talks constantly about the women that he met online since he was on 
on the online dating sites for four years, um, he was still talking to some of the women and he would explain to me that, you know, you developed friendships with some of these people. He actually met some of them and they decided they weren't right to date, but they still remained friends. And I was understanding about that. He would text them. He would call them with me there. And I just let it happen. I honestly really didn't have a problem with it because I could, I could rationalize that. Sometimes it would feel a little weird, but I would try to understand. And then he says to me, um, you know, I wouldn't have a problem if some guy messaged you and started flirting with you. You're a beautiful woman. And I, I would like that a guy would think my woman is hot. And I didn't like that. And I told him that I didn't like that because I felt like, I felt like he should care if, if he loves me, if he cares about, if, if he's, well, we're not, we're not at the love phase yet, but, but if he said to me, I would think he would not want some guy messaging me. And I also felt like this was opening the door for him to flirt with women, that it was opening a door to say that this was okay to do. And um, I didn't like that. So I went to a raise for the weekend and he came with me and the whole time he's on the phone with this woman and I didn't really have a problem with it. Again, he says, oh, she's just, he's telling me what she's talking about. By the end of the second day, I said, you know what? We just spent the weekend together and you spent the majority of your time texting this woman. And he says that he told her that I said that and that she said, are you fucking kidding me? You've been texting me this whole time. You're out of town with this girl. Get the fuck off the phone with me. Now, whether that ever happened or not, I don't know. <laughs> but he admitted I was right. He said, I was just stupid. There's nothing going on between us. I was just talking to her about this and blah, blah, blah. All right. Um, so again, he's a, he's a braggart. We're dealing with the braggart side of him. We're dealing with the talking about the women's side of him. And, and every time he brings up these women, it's all about appearance, how beautiful they were, all these women that he dated, gorgeous, beautiful, this, that, you know, all this stuff, to the point where I finally started saying, listen, I don't have a self-confidence issue. I'm confident in who I am, but I really don't need to hear how beautiful everybody is. Like, if you want to tell me so-and-so did this or so-and-so did that, I don't need to know what they look like or how incredibly gorgeous or intelligent they were. All right. You can just tell me the story, but that never stopped. All right. That race, that, that, that first race that we went to, um, it was out of town and he was supposed to come to my house and we were driving up together and he was late. And I was really upset because I was supposed to do a pre-race thing that was really important to me and I was going to miss it now. And I expressed my frustration and he starts raving at me. We we're in the car at this point. And he, he says, pull the car over. Let me get the fuck out of the car. And he's, he's getting really, really angry to the point where I'm scared he's going to hit me. So I pull the car over. He gets out of the car in my neighborhood and he starts walking. And like, so I'm driving slow beside him. And I'm like, you, you got to get back in the car. Like, what are you doing? He's like, are you going to shut your fucking mouth now? Or are you going to keep going on? So I was like, fine, just get in the car. So I learned to shut my mouth. And basically, I missed that part of, of the race that I really wanted to, to get to. And um, he shows no remorse, never says he's sorry. Also, when I come 
in at the finish line to give him an approximate time. I'm excited because yay, I'm going to have support. I'm going to have a boyfriend because I watch all my friends that I race with. They all have boyfriends there and they all, they're all there at the end and they take their picture and they're all, and I, I do the big finish and there's a fire jump at the end and I do the big finish and I'm looking all around and he's not there. He's not there because he's golfing and he shows up about 30 minutes later. Um, we decide to go to, uh, I have to go to my family's home back down South to pick up a car. And I asked him if he wants to go and he says he will. So I'm all excited telling my family about all his accomplishments that he's a widower, all the stuff he's gone through. And at this point we become exclusive. We talk about going off the dating apps. He's very supportive of me with my son. When my son acts up, he says he will do what he can to be a father figure to my son. Thank you, God. That was what I needed to hear. So I'm feeling really like, like I've got somebody by my side now. Then one day I, I text him in the morning. Every morning I'm getting the good morning, beautifuls, blah, blah, blah. Every morning. And then one morning he's not there. And I immediately go into that panic mode. That feeling like I talked about as a kid with my dad on the phone. It's full-fledged that. It's that PTSD full-fledged. I go into panic. What's going on? I'm trying to calm myself down. My heart is racing. Um, when he calls me, I'm a mess. I can't even hide it. And I explained to him that, that I do have PTSD and that if he could please just, you know, if, if something's going on and he can't answer my call, just send me a little text. Just let me know he's there, just something. And he's understanding. And he makes me believe that he will that'll never happen again unless it's just some freak thing and that I do not have to worry. I now believe that he made a mental note of everything I said on that day and decided that's how he was going to destroy me because that's exactly what he did. Uh, anytime we would have a fight or because we lived an hour away, if we were not together, he would hang up the phone on me we were together he would leave and I couldn't get in touch with him and it was five years of that so he definitely knew how to get to me so even with the continually chatting with other women I, I still felt adored loved protected I was his woman and I just so needed this in my life even though things bothered me about how he always bragged about himself the way he talked to women seemed to think he was better than others, I felt secure and at peace. And I was happy with where I was at. And then one day he calls me up and he says, I really hate to do this. I'm in a bind. And I was wondering if I could borrow some money from you. I'll pay you back in a week. As soon as he said that, my heart sank. I just knew this was not appropriate. This was, this was only a few months into the relationship and I knew this should not be happening. And I hated that he asked me and every part of me was screaming, no, <laughs> no fucking way. But I was afraid to insult him and I was afraid to lose him, even though I knew rationally, I shouldn't lose him. If I say no, I should have felt secure enough to, to say, no, I'm sorry. I just, I don't feel comfortable doing this. And we should still be able to date, right? Yet I didn't have that confidence. So I said, yes. We're talking quite a lot of money. It was about 
I think it was about $20,000, somewhere around there. He said it was a problem with the job site. It was an insurance claim and there were issues and he could, he was stuck in a bind where he couldn't move forward to do what needed to be done without money. But the people that, that were doing, he was doing the job for had taken the, most of the insurance money and instead of paying him had skipped town. He actually took me to the site. He showed me the house. So I, I did believe him. And I, I thought, okay, you know, this is good. He says he's going to pay me back in a week. The week goes by, no money. Next week goes by, no money. So I start to ask and I start wondering. I wonder if he has a gambling problem. I don't really know this guy. Um, we live near casinos. Maybe this is what's going on. So I, so I asked him and I said, listen, I, I just had to be honest. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. You know, is there something else going on? And he just laughs at me. He said, this is the most hilarious thing that you think I'm a gambler, blah, blah, blah. No, baby, you know, everything is fine. Trust me. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire a lawyer. We're going to work through this. And, and he did. He did hire a lawyer. So again, I felt, I felt okay. Maybe this was legit. More, more time goes by. Again, I, I'm trying to space out the time I ask because when I do ask, it's it's starting to um, get the results of things like, you know what, maybe I never should have asked you for this money. You clearly don't trust me. We clearly are not meant for each other. I'll, I'll pay you back. I'm going to pay you back. But I think that you and I just are not meant to be together, which trained me to stop asking. You know, it, it trained me to keep my mouth shut. So the suit falls through. Um, but he does eventually start paying me back in installments. And um, so I do start feeling a little bit better. I am getting some installments going. Um, but we're about four months into this uh, at this point. And because I'm feeling anxious about all this with, with the money, I decide uh, to check his computer one day to see if I can see anything or find anything out. and. Um, I see that he's still on the dating sites and I see some current conversations going on, but they're very similar to the conversations he had with me in the beginning. And, uh, I, I confront him about it and he makes a lame excuse that he, I didn't tell him I saw the conversation. So I confront him about it, that I saw that he was still on the dating sites. He makes a lame excuse that he thought he deleted the account. Um, but he, he didn't realize it was still up there. So then I bring up that I did see the conversations and he doesn't respond to that and he just won't talk about it. And again, he makes the point of me knowing that if I continue this conversation, I should just leave because we're obviously not meant to be together if I can't trust him. So I shut up. Up until then, even though I had like, you know, some annoyance with him talking to other women, I, I really honest to God can say I 100% trusted him with other women. I did not think he would cheat on me. Not at all. But I, you know, I'm, I'm seeing some things about him now when we have fights that, um, well, you know, like with, with that, that, that he refuses to apologize. Absolutely refuses to apologize no matter what it's about. I try to teach him how life works that, okay, well, maybe you didn't purposely do something wrong, but if, that if you see that somebody is hurt by something, can you at least apologize that they're hurt? Like, can you give me that? Can you give me anything? No, no, he, can, he can't do that. So the next month I go away, I'm doing this 
training out of town and I'm, I'm feeling on top of the world. I'm feeling strong. Things are going well with him. We're, you know, we're working it out. Things are going well. I, I trust that he finally closed out because I was with him on the dating sites and we closed him out and I'm driving home from this awesome training day. And he decides to tell me, he says, oh, I just, I just want to tell you this. Um, just in case you see it, which there would be no way for me to see it. He was friends with this girl online. And he says to me, I don't really know how I met her. I don't know if I met her on the dating site or if we did some job together. I'm not really sure how I met her. And um, so anyway, we're talking on Facebook and in this, this open post, not privately, on an open post. And I thought, how funny would it be if I start getting really sexual with her in this conversation in front of everybody and just shock them? So I start making little innuendos. And then I private message her and I tell her that, you know, let's, let's shock people. Let's see how shocked they can get. And I'm like thinking, what, are you, what the fuck are you telling me? And so I, I expressed that to him. And he says, well, that was all a joke. And I just thought I would tell you because if you saw it on Facebook, you would know it was a joke. Well, I'm not friends with this woman. I, you know, so there's no way I would see it anyway. Um, thinking back on this now, as I was doing my work, I think this was done purposefully to scare me. Um, as, as were a lot of things, I think this is, this was the first real sign of the triangulation that was going to continue in our relationship. I got really upset and I started to panic and I started to cry. And his response to that was, Oh, you've got to fucking be kidding me. It was a joke. And he hangs up on me. So now I'm driving home in full panic mode, calling him back, trying to get him to answer. I start calling obsessively. He won't answer. I'm like losing it. Finally, um, after a little bit of me not calling, he calls back. He says, are you, are you done now? Was his response. And I tried to explain. I get all upset all over again. I tried to voice how this upset me, how I thought we were exclusive. Why would you want to be talking to another woman like that? And why would you want other people to see it? Why is this important to you? And so he hangs up on me. The next month, we're at a Super Bowl party. And um, the Eagles, uh, this is the Eagles are going to the Super Bowl for the first time in many, many years. And this is, you know, if anybody knows the Phillies, <laughs> the Phillies and the Eagles, they are devout, crazy fans, and, and they take their, their games very seriously there. We're at this party. I, I meet the person who's hosting the party for the first time, this guy. And there's two younger girls at this party that, they're, that are, 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 are of the age of his, my boyfriend's oldest son, who is like 32, 31 or 32. And they're very flirty. And they're not with anybody, really. They're just kind of there. And they're, I'm watching him watch them. And I'm getting really uncomfortable with how I see him looking at them. He's got this, like, gleam in his eye. And it, it's got, like, this half smile on his face. And it's kind of making me nauseous, Um but he doesn't do anything inappropriate. It's just something I'm observing on how he watches them. 
and he calls them baby and stuff like that. Um, and I, and I have a conversation with him about that. And he says, oh, it's just a South Philly thing. We give everybody pet names, um, sweetheart, baby, whatever. And I said, well, you know, when, when you're with somebody that you're supposed to be in a relationship with, I feel like, okay, maybe, maybe sweetheart, <laughs> I can handle calling women baby that you really don't even know like that. I don't know. That just, to me, to me, that should be special. That should be just for me. And, and I had a problem with that. So the Eagles end up winning that night and he's all pissed off at me for having this conversation with him and says, I'm ruining the night. Uh, so I shut up. I don't want to have a fight. I keep my mouth shut after that. We go back to his home and we're, uh, we're in his bed and he gets a text from a girl and I see it. He picks up his phone and I see the text and it's this girl in this green metallic wig. And I said, who's that? And he tells me, oh, she's somebody I told you about her. We went out once. I met her online. We went out once, but she wasn't for me. Um, and she's just sending me a picture because the Eagles just won. So I look at the picture and I can see a text above the picture and it's sexting. And I gasp and he grabs the phone out of my hand and he deletes it immediately. And my whole body at this point is, is, is convulsing. I'm shaking. And he tells me, oh, that was an old text. That was before I even started dating you. And I said, well, why would it still be there? And he said, I, that was like 500 texts down the line. Like, you know, she just sent me this because the Eagles won and it just popped back up. Well, of course, I don't know because he deleted the message. So there's no way for me to, to validate that he's what he's saying is true. So I have to make a choice. Do I believe him or not? And as I'm sitting there shaking uncontrollably in full panic mode, I know that I have a choice. We're either going to fight about this and he's going to kick me out or I'm going to just deal with it. So I asked to see his phone and he hands me his phone and I see on, on messenger on Facebook messenger, there's all these messages to a bunch of different women. And I'm like, I'm looking through them and he grabs the phone out of my hand and I'm like, who are all these women? And I don't see anything like inappropriate in the quick time that I saw, I just see all these different women. And he's like, I told you, I have a lot of friends with a lot of these women that I met before I ever even met you. You don't just stop talking to people, blah, blah, blah. Either deal with it or fucking get out of my house. So now I know, you know, this is what I'm dealing with. And I don't have the strength to, to leave. And I don't, don't know that he's not being honest. You know, I don't know that. Maybe it isn't any more than that. Maybe, maybe he is just friends with these women. He calls me insecure and says that if I can't handle who he is, then then he's not the person for me. That he's not gonna, he's not gonna pussyfoot around. You know, he is who he is. And if I don't like it, I can leave. And I'm just so confused and and shaken and and I don't want to lose him. And I'm just trying desperately to get him to see. 
how it's inappropriate to to be speaking, you know, to privately message women when you're supposedly in a committed relationship, which we discussed that we were. But he doesn't he doesn't give me anything. He doesn't ever say, I understand what you're saying. You know, and he doesn't ever do that. It's just deal with it or, or leave. And he he likes to repeat this thing I, that I will not tell him who can he can be friends with, which makes me feel like I'm being controlling. It makes me feel like I'm in the wrong. And I'm just, I'm just really, I'm really confused on how to handle this. Um, there are women in his life who I have no problem with. There was a woman that he dated years prior to me, years before the woman that he had his daughter with. And she's a, a, a prevalent part of his life. And she friended me on Facebook and we met, we had dinner together. I had no problem with her, no jealousy, nothing. Um, his ex-girlfriend that he has the, the the daughter with. I We would go out to dinner together after events with their daughter. I have no problem with her. So I don't think that I'm ridiculous or controlling. It's just that I'm expecting him to not be privately messaging women that he really has no relationship with. But too bad for me because he's not going to change. So now... All I can think about is what's on his phone. Who's he talking to? When I'm not with him, who's he talking to? When I am with him, every time his phone pings, it's like Pavlovian's dog that, you know, where they ring the bell and the dog salivates. It's it's like my um, talk about a drug. And again, I didn't know this stuff until I started researching how the the effect of being in this kind of relationship is like being on drugs and that dopamine and, and all of that stuff. Um, this is the life I'm living at this point. I am on constant fight or flight mode and we're really not even a year in yet in this relationship. So time does pass in your relationship with a little bit of a normality that's going on, but you're still being put down and then your intuition starts to get at you again and you see some messages pop up on his phone so walk us through this i decide to find his passwords because i need some kind of clarity as to what's going on one day i am uh i'm with him and we're on a date and he disappears for a while and he says he's going to the bathroom and when he comes back, he's just down on his phone the whole time. And I bring it up and he explodes at, in the restaurant at me. And the waitress is looking at me, making eye contact with me, like telling me like, I'm here. Are you okay? Like I could tell, like wanting me to know, like she's watching me and I just hold back the tears. Uh, we go back home. And he shows me this text from this girl that he supposedly had done some work for. And he's like making up this story about this girl. And he shows me the text and it's completely harmless. There's nothing about sex or anything like that. And I'm like, okay. So I go back home the next day and he calls me up and he's starting to get very uh, sexual with me on the phone. And I forget whether I had to go or he had to go. But anyway, I get off the phone 
And all of a sudden I hear, and I have his messenger on my phone with his password and I hear ping, I hear all these pings. And I look at it and he's in this full-fledged sexting conversation with this woman that he had shown me the text from the day before. And I look at the timestamp and it was even during the time that he was talking to me on the phone. And then I look at another, I see another conversation and then another one from another girl. And there's literally three sexting conversations going on at the same time. So I call him and I'm, I'm you know, in a panic and I tell him, I have your password. I'm seeing these conversations. And he just, he says, we're done. And he hangs up on me. So at this point, I reach out to the mother of his daughter. And I also call his son, who I have a, a good relationship with. And I tell him what's going on. And, I, and I'm, I'm just hysterical. They're both very uh, helpful to me, very consoling. And um, the son basically says that, you know, his dad is who he is. He's never going to change. He won't really say much other than that. I find out from the mother of his daughter a lot of information. I find out that he's not a widower, that in fact, his wife kicked him out of the house before she ever got sick. She did get sick. She did have a terminal illness and she did die, but he was out of the house before she was ever even diagnosed. Um, that's how I found out he didn't have a degree from Wharton. In fact, he had been married a second time to a woman who was never brought up. And he was already divorced that woman before his first wife even died. So how did you handle this? And what happened from here? I, he blocks me at that point. Um, and then the next day he calls me up and he says that the reason why he did all that, he doesn't want to lose me, but he needs me to understand that the reason why he was sexting those women was because he can't handle my son and that I should understand how hard it is for him who, who loves me dearly, but how could he allow his daughter to be around my son who she she never would have been anyway and he was just at such a crossroads because he loved me so much and he just was afraid he could not be with me because of my son and that enraged me you know I, I said you have every right to not want to be with me but you want your cake and eat it too and instead of breaking up with me you you continue to have sex with me you continue to act like we're exclusive, yet you're doing this. I knew he was full of shit. Um, still, still did not have the ability to leave him. I reached out to a therapist at this point. This is during COVID shutdowns, and I couldn't go to a life therapist. So I reached out to somebody online, and it was just, it was a nightmare. Um, they basically told me, oh, he's just a flirt. Um, you love him, right? If, if you love him, just, you know, he's just, he's set in his ways. He's just a flirt. So that just ag added more to my confusion. You know, how much of this is me? 
how much of, of it is him. And maybe I do need to just chill and I would try to chill and I, I wouldn't have a password and I would just let it go. But his phone would be pinging all the time. And and then I would get his password again. So this just went back and forth and back and forth. And, and basically the last year of our relationship, I'm, I, I have his passwords again. I'm seeing more and more conversation going on. And what seems to happen is that he reaches out to women. And he he compliments them and he tries to take it in a sexual direction. But for the most part, they don't respond. And at this point, I'm beating myself up because I think I shouldn't. And I, I, I am seeing a therapist at this point in person and I'm talking to the therapist about it. And I say, yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this. If I feel like I have to have the passwords, then then I... I shouldn't be in this relationship. And I felt at this at this point that I had to prove, I had to have proof. I had to see that he would cross the line. And I really felt hatred for him at this point. Um, but I felt extremely trauma bonded to him. I felt like I could not live without him. And I didn't know what trauma bonded meant yet. Um, so there was one last conversation and um it was things that were like, honestly, there was a picture of me and him in this profile picture. So when he's messaging this woman, he sees my face and she asks who I am. And he says that, that I'm his girlfriend. He doesn't hide me, which was more confusing to me. Um, but then she says, well, you should replace her, her picture with mine. And so it starts going in this direction and he starts rolling with it. And he starts talking about, um, again, his, his sexual prowess for his age and how, you know, all this stuff. But then she cuts it off. And I confront him the next day. Um, and I say that I just feel like something's going on. I don't let him know that I saw the conversation. And he admits to me that he was talking to this woman. And for the first time, I see a smirk on his face. And I'd never seen a smirk like that. And I've I've read about this later. Um, and I was crying. I'm sitting there upset. And I see this smirk. And I realize this is it. He's destroying me. And he does not care. And this is never, ever going to stop. And yet... I'm holding out hope. And I admit that I had the passwords and I had the screenshots of this conversation. And even still, he wiggles his way around it, does not apologize, did not do anything wrong. And so we separate. And I find out later, um, because I actually, he did not know until the day after that I had the passwords when I sent him the screenshots and I see him immediately reaching out to like three or four women <laughs> that night. And it's like onto the new supply, onto the new supply. Like I never mattered, you know? So it was just finally kicking into me that he was never going to change and I was being destroyed. And it was um, the final straw for me. And I fortunately had gotten hooked up with a trauma therapist who was awesome. 
um, I had, she had me get out. So we were working on two things at once. Um, she knew that I had to go back to my childhood. And she also knew that it was extremely traumatic because I was highly trauma bonded. I mean, I was, oh my God, I've never cried like this in my life. I thought I was going to die from crying. That feeling of not having him was so intense. And I started following every podcast and every, every, Instagram, everything I could on narcissism and trying to learn it. And two things that I had never heard before were cognitive dissonance and trauma bonds. And that was, those were the things that really clicked in with me and helped me to understand what was going on. And I, I heard this one uh, scientist talk about trauma bonds and narcissistic abuse and the study and watching what happens to the brain comparing to coming off of uh, a heroin addiction. So cognitively, I'm starting to understand this. Physically in my body, I'm feeling it 100%. And I'm just trying to hold on, you know, to any, any kind of like any thread to keep me going. Um, I, I gave myself grace. I was fortunate at this point in time for this few month period to be able to take the time. Um, my kids were out of the house and I could really, I started thinking of it as if I were recovering from a major surgery. And it was hard for me because I like to be a go-getter. I like to go, go, go. And I couldn't. I couldn't, I could barely function and I had the brain fog. I would try to work and I, I just, I could not focus on anything. Um, but we kind of went therapy back and forth between dealing with the inner child and dealing with how I was handling the breakup. And she told me to find a picture of myself as a little girl. And what I did was. I found two pictures. I found a picture of myself as a little girl before my parents divorced. And I found a picture of myself when I was nine years old, when I was given drugs and being sexually abused. And I put those two side by side on a mirror. And in between those pictures, I, I made a heart. And one of the things that my ex-boyfriend said to me, and we were together five years, um, he would say things like, who are you? Who do you think you are? You're a nobody. He would call me a piece of shit and he would call me a nobody a lot. So I wrote a little note on the heart and it said, you, you are somebody. And I wrote down all these good things about myself. And I put notes up all around my house to remind me not to call him, not to reach out to him. I could not block him. I could not do it. And every once in a while we would reach out, but it, it, it would become a, a competition of 
just let me get through to him. Just let me get through to him. Let me understand how much he hurt me. Let him understand. He says that I'm the woman of his life. He was going to spend the rest of his life with me. Then why would you do something so stupid like this? And I would try and try and try and try and try to get through to him. And it just fell on deaf ears. And through research, understanding that this is, this is their MO and this is how they, this is pretty much textbook. Um, and it just took time. Um, it took time, but I started feeling a little bit better. And I started delving more into my childhood. And I realized that even in my adult life, when I did start going to therapy, it was pretty much just talk therapy about my childhood abuse. And I always felt frustrated because I, I felt like I told my story a million times, yet nothing changed. And when was it going to make a difference? When was it going to change? And for the first time through going through this, something clicked in me and I, I saw that little girl and I cared about her. And one day I woke up and I cared more about her than I did him. And that was a big game changer for me. And when I would break down and I would want to call him, I would write letters to him for me, never sending them to him, but I would write letters. I would get it out. I had papers everywhere, write down every bad thing he ever did to me, all the lies, all this stuff. Um, and eventually it just started getting a little bit better. I mean, I broke up with him in August and uh, I can honestly say I, I, I don't feel any love for him at all anymore. I still feel some kind of weird disappointment, I guess, that he just couldn't get it. But I don't feel any love for him anymore. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, whether it be a relationship or just, you know, a life filled with, you know, trauma from when they were younger, what would you say to them? If, if you're coming from a history like I have or a similar history where you've got deep rooted um, issues, I guess I would say give yourself grace to understand that and do whatever you can to work on yourself um, to understand why you're tolerating this stuff. You don't even need to tell your partner or whoever it is that you're doing this, but give yourself the time to do the work. Um, I'm not saying it's on, on you because it's, it's on them. The abuse is on them 100%. But you can't find that strength to leave if you don't care about yourself. And that's the utmost importance. Well, Sharon, I really want to thank you for being here with us today. It's not easy to share one's whole entire life story as you did today, all the trauma, but you did and you did a great job and you validated so many people's experiences today. And I can't thank you enough uh, for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you for what you do. You're truly a lifesaver. 
Well, thank you. And if you want to be a guest like Sharon was today on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also, at our website, we have our very own support group. So if you need support, go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. And when you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network there. You can see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on and get the validation that you need and to validate other survivors as well. It is a great group of people at our support group. So if you need support, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com and press that support group button today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. They have every phone number, every email address, and every website address for shelters and agencies. No matter how big or small your town is, DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource, so please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Sharon, we hope you have a good night.